welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is someone who I've kind of known and admired for a while, so it's psyched that she agreed to come on, Dr. Evelyn Farkas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bradley. So you, you currently run the McCain Institute, and we're going to talk about it, but just because... Uh, a, your background is so impressive, and B, I want to establish your credibility for the rest of the podcast. Take like 90 seconds and go through all the stuff you've done. Oh my gosh. Or well, it's going to make me sound 100, year, 100 years old because I've done a lot of things sometimes for a short amount of time. Um, I am a foreign policy wonk, so I have three decades foreign policy experience, including working overseas in the field in Bosnia right after the war. Um, I also worked basically about 20 years in the government, 10 years on the Hill um, for Carl Levin on the Senate Armed Services Committee, which is where I got to know Senator McCain and the entire McCain team. Um, I also worked in the administration for the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. That's the best damn, can I say damn? Yeah. Uh, job title ever. You can say ever. anything on this podcast. <laughs> um, Admiral Sirius, yes. And then I uh, ended up, my last government job, I was president, well, I skipped one congressional job. I was executive director of the Commission on the Prevention of WMD Proliferation and Terrorism. That's a mouthful. Okay. Sounds reasonably important. Bipartisan, though, so yeah. this this will come back into the conversation. And then um, the last government job, I was uh, deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia. Uh, I was an Obama administration political appointee. Um, I came out of government. I was one of the first to raise the alarm about the Russia interfering in our elections or frankly in our in our society and looking at the Russia Trump connection I then went on to work as a contributor for MSNBC and consulting I woke up one morning um, after well in 2019 and thought what if Donald Trump wins what will right. I do to save our democracy yep. and decided to run for Congress that's I'm, I'm compressing the story a little bit but for Nita Lowy's seat mm -hmm. in New York New York's at the time it was the 17th congressional district so northern Westchester and Rockland County is that the district that no longer exists that district well I, <laughs> Once, I don't know what yeah, if they couldn't the have you they're like fuck it we're just not going to have a district at all <laughs> well they did have someone they had Mondaire Jones right. there he then found himself districtless so right. I guess I don't the number must still be there, but um, the and I confess I didn't check. Um, but he went on and ran in the tenth district. Yeah, it went, went pretty badly. Yeah, and Daniel Goldman's going to Congress. represent them on the hill. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, that's great. So that's summary. kind of an abbreviated. Okay. So, so then you've got all of this background. You know, all of this. Uh, clearly, if you want to go to the Biden administration, they would have loved to have you in ten different capacities. You chose to make your next thing running the McCain Institute. So let's just start with. Well, everyone here knows who McCain is, but what is the McCain Institute and why are you doing this? So I am the child of Hungarian uh, refugees. They, they were political refugees. They fled communism. I know what it's like to live in a non-democracy because I visited my, my grandparents in Hungary and was told, you know, if I said the wrong thing and the lady next door heard it, she would report my grandparents and they would get in trouble. And I knew that trouble wasn't something small. It, it entailed police and jail and not like in America. And so um, I grew up with a deep appreciation for everything America provided for my family, you know, freedom economic opportunity. And frankly, I have never been so alarmed uh, as I am now and as I was, you know, starting basically from when Trump was 
in office uh, fairly soon about the state of American democracy. I had worked on trying to promote democracy overseas as part of my profession as a mm -hmm. foreign policy person, but um, now I found myself increasingly interested in trying to do what I could to protect our democracy. And I was on television and writing and consulting, and the McCain Institute, it's a place where its mission has met the moment. It is nonpartisan. It works across the lines. It creates leaders from sort of the mid-career level and fostering them on up. It also enables leaders to make smart decisions. And our mission is essentially, you, you know, with the informed by the legacy of the McCain family, to defend democracy, human rights, and character-driven leadership, and to do it boldly with integrity. And so, you know, that to me was really meaningful opportunity. It's a small organization, but we do amazing work. We partner with the Anti-Defamation League on countering hate. You know, we work with all kinds of organizations on preventing forced labor and developing tools to actually help institutions and officials better target forced labor and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. We have programs, leadership programs, where we use the McCain, again, values-based, integrity-based integrity leadership principles to educate people who are mid-career and rising from all over the world. So there, that's just an example of some of the things that the organization does, but we're really innovative, we're really small, and we created a new program about a year ago to focus on American democracy. So, so what are you guys doing in that program? So in that program, we convene, at, you know, at, at a high level, we convene something called the Sedona Forum in May. Mm -hmm. But at the intermediate level, all over in Washington, D.C., and then in Arizona, we bring together people to talk about threats to democracy. We have talked about um, violence directed at election officials. We have talked in these convenings. We have, we, the most recent one we did, we did five of them, and I probably I won't remember them all off the top of my head, and I've only been in the job six months, so I wasn't around for these. Yeah. But the last one was with Liz Cheney about three weeks, three or four weeks ago in Arizona. And that was, um, we essentially did it on campus so that the students would hear. Yeah, she sure. talked about civic responsibility and she was interviewed by our democracy fellow, Sophia Gross. Mm -hmm. And we, we have a lot of fellows also who help us kind of, again, convene, get the word out about democracy and create more interest. Got it. Um, maybe one of these days I can convince you to let me come talk about mobile voting or one of these things. Sure. Um, <laughs> if, if John McCain were running for office today for the first time, could he win? Or someone sort of is sort of just bipartisan and moderate in some ways as him, just no longer a viable candidate? It depends on where he's running, I think. You know, yes, he could win. Could he win in Arizona today? I doubt it because he's not going to, you know, he's not going to promote a lie, which is what the politicians no. there right now seem to be doing and getting away with. I, I have to be careful not to get too political here because right. we yeah, are nonpartisan. Yeah. Um, but he, he, you know, I think his, his, his background and his experience is so relevant as a veteran, as a hero, somebody who was held in captivity for five and a half years. And actually, if today's October 28th, I think it's the day that he was shot down. If, it, if today's the 28th, he was shot down on October 28th. Wow. And, um, that experience being shot down and held in captivity as a POW really gave him, I think, the core, the, the backbone, the values, the understanding that you have to speak up and speak out and stand 
behind what you believe. And so that's what he did every time, everything from, you know, when when he was campaigning against President Obama, you remember that moment when this woman disparaged President Obama. Oh, and, right. yeah. yeah, and he said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, he's a good man. He's, he's, he's you know, basically trying to do the right thing. Um, and so, you know, he didn't let character assassination enter into the debate. So he was a very decent politician. Do you think that being serving in the military ultimately moderates you because you understand the complexity of the world better, or does it sort of more radicalize you because you're, you know, now identifying with a particular tribe and, and policy view? I think it depends where you're serving in the military, at what level, maybe what service, how much you do internationally. But certainly, m many of the you know men and women that I know who serve in uniform or who have served in uniform and done so overseas and have risen through the ranks, they all gain an appreciation for the world and for different perspectives. So even if they're not coming from like myself, you know, a different culture in my yeah. house, and so I always understood foreign cultures, you know, just naturally. Even if they don't have that kind of dynamic in their personal background, having served overseas, lived and and talked to, you know, foreigners, they gain a better perspective. And so I think it does help you be a smarter, more creative leader, for sure. And you are not going to be necessarily as dogmatic about, you know, America having everything, getting everything right. Right. Um, yeah, because... Um, We're also humans here. Correct. So let's take a quick spin around the world. And you, know, you have so much expertise in so many areas. Um, the obvious place to start is the Ukraine. What's your sense of what's happening, where it's going, and what should we be doing differently? Yeah, so what I have to say about Ukraine is I wish that more Americans understood that this is not about Ukraine, it's not about Europe, it's about the international order. Vladimir Putin wants to recreate this you know, neo-imperial, new Russia, this, this kind of Russian empire. Mm -hmm. But what, what in, in creating it, what he wants to do is tear down the international order that we created after World War II. After World War II, we said, look, whether you like it or not, these are the boundaries and you can't change them by force. If you want to change boundaries, you have to negotiate it. We did, we set up all these basically breaks through the international system so that we wouldn't have another World War III. And we certainly put in place the Geneva Conventions, which said you can't just kill women, children in the middle of a war, that, 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 that they're not military targets. And so what Putin's doing right now is, leaving aside the egregious human rights violations, he's trying to break down the international order. He's basically saying, I don't want the United Nations. I don't want all these rules about boundaries. I want to be able to tell a smaller state what it can do, you know, what, what kind of alliances it can join. So this is in the case of Ukraine. You can't join NATO. You can't join the European Union. I, the big neighbor, I'm going to occupy you, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. This is going back to 19th century sphere of influence politics. And when you don't have the international order with the rules that we established after World War II, you have competition between big powers over small powers. The small powers, of course, suffer, but we all suffer. You have economic protectionism that usually comes along yeah. with it. And then you have World War III. So I don't think it's too alarmist to say if we get it wrong in Ukraine, we could end up dragged into World War III. And I can walk you through the steps if you like. Yeah, well, so, so let's assume that Putin had the same, same person, but this was 1964 instead of 2022. Is the world order and the war sort of re establishment and the war itself recent enough that you couldn't credibly try this or do this, and it's because it's been 77 years and people are sort of just forgetting all of this? Or is it just that 
he is such a unique figure that someone like him would have tried to do this at any point. I think it's two things. It's one, as you said, you know, humans have short memories. It's been a long time since World War II, and the people who experienced it firsthand are dying. My father's 97. Uh, He experienced it. Um, But he didn't fight, though. But anyway, leaving that aside, he was a draft dodger. Um, But um, He's alive. He's alive, yeah. Well, his family didn't agree. I mean, they were, the Hungarians were allied with the Nazis, and my relatives were not Nazis, so, I mean, they didn't want him to serve. Anyway, that's a longer story, but the point being that um, the the memory is eroding. The other issue is that in 1964, we still had the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union, us versus them, and so you could rally Americans against those bad guys. And now we have those bad guys interfering in our politics, giving talking points through social media, through the internet, through regular media, right? And our politicians may or may not be aware of it. And, and these foreigners are interfering directly in our system, you know, essentially trying to create opposition, trying to create an argument that somehow Russia is not an enemy or somehow we should ignore Russia's, you know, transgressions that they're not a threat to us when indeed they are. Right. So so you mentioned World War III. What are the steps that sort of lead to that happening and how worried should we be about that? So what would, if, if Putin got his way in Ukraine, meaning he was able to control Ukraine politically using his military, he would then, you know, rest and regroup, but he would go for pretty quickly for control over Georgia and Moldova. These are also small states. They both have Russian forces in them right now. Georgia is 20% of its territory is occupied by Russia. That's That happened in 2008, another war that we unfortunately didn't fully understand the implications of. And, and so he would start with those because they were part of the Soviet Union. And he would cut, try to recreate the Soviet Union. And then he would start to probe, I believe, at the, Bal- the Baltic states or Poland. And there, with the Baltic states, they were part of the Soviet Union, so he, maybe he would try to get them back under his influence. But he also would be intending to eliminate NATO. So he would poke at NATO in order to see whether we would come to the aid of whatever NATO state's sovereignty he was infringing upon. And by infringing upon, you know, he could send in little green men and create a disturbance. What's NATO going to do? Are we going to help out Estonia or Poland? And if we don't, then it's the beginning of the end of NATO. And he does not, he does not like NATO because he understands militarily and politically the United States and its European allies, you know, operationally, militarily, we can challenge Russia, we can stand up to Russia and stop him in his attempt to control all these other small states and, you know, exert influence. And his influence, he would want to exert it also in Eastern Europe, as he, as the Soviet Union did back in those old days. He, he has a mindset, frankly, you know, an imperial mindset, but I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So, um, just to play devil's advocate here, so the, the other side would be, okay, he'll take Moldova, he'll take Georgia, he'll collapse the international order. You know, I'm sitting here in New York City and I'm worried about, you know, my job and my kids and the Mets and whatever else. And what I hear is, well, he might choose to use some sort of tactical nuclear weapon if he, if he can't make any more military progress in the Ukraine and that then risks setting off a nuclear war. If my only goal is to live and make sure that my kids are safe, um, why do I care who governs Moldova? Well, if you want to live and keep your kids safe, you don't want them to be involved in World War III, so you want the Ukrainians to win so that the war doesn't spread. And by the way, another way it could spread is 
by Belarus getting involved because there's, and that's a little complicated, involves the map of Europe and Russia has this small enclave um, that is separated from Belarus just by Poland, a corridor in Poland, and Russia's been trying to get transit access there. Again, another way to isolate NATO countries, make them weak, challenge NATO. If we are afraid of, so, okay, so, so we don't want our children to go into World War III. If we let ourselves be deterred by Putin and his nuclear threats, then again, he will get his way. And I've already laid out why that's bad. His nuclear threat, I do not believe that Putin is crazy. And I do not believe that he would detonate a nuclear weapon because he has to know that the day after he does that, he will be faced with conventional attacks by the United States. He will be faced with international outcry because even his friends, so in quotes, you know, like China or kind of friends like India, they would not stand for that. It, the, the nuclear taboo, I think, still is something that means, that's meaningful to people around the world. Yeah. And, at, you know, starting with the Japanese who experienced it. And so I think that it would be a different world and the international community would say any leader who made a decision to even just detonate a nuclear weapon yep. you know in the in the context of a war but in any context cannot remain in power that that is just something that's, it's a and it's you a think bridge the too far order holds up enough to enforce that if putin were to do it i i believe that it would but of course i'm also hoping fervently that it right. would and and i'm also a little bit hoping that Putin and the military around him are sane enough that they wouldn't do this. So I have to concede to you yeah. that it's not entirely impossible that he wouldn't use a nuclear weapon. Right. So but be, the yeah. risk is still low enough that, that I think we have to forge on and we have right. to be strong and we have to right. tell him what, you know, we have to deter him. I mean, right. nuclear, nuclear powers can be deterred. So if I'm subscribing to your macro point of view and yet not wanting to be up all night afraid, I guess I would tell me this, this is right. One, I would say there's an extremely low to no chance that Putin would actually do this because A, he's not crazy, and B, and B the consequences would be so severe yeah. and he's not irrational. Even if, right. you know. Number two, if he were to do it, in your view, all of the other nuclear powers aren't firing back with nukes. They're using conventional weapons instead. So it's not the, the detonation of one doesn't then lead automatically into a full-on nuclear war. Yes, you would be safe here in New York, Bradley. Your children as well, because the only way we would use a nuclear weapon, in my estimation and in our doctrine, is if one is used against us directly. Vladimir Putin is not that. That is like far from the realm of what he's what he's even hinting at. Right. He's hinting at using it against the Ukrainians in the battlefield, which is horrible and would impact certainly Russian citizens as well because of not just the political fallout, but the literal fallout. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, you're correct. It will not lead to nuclear Armageddon. Right. And therefore, the notion of protecting the international order, protecting Moldova, Georgia, places that most people listening to this podcast have probably never been to or heard of, is necessary because ultimately if the goal is to keep my kids safe, World War III is less likely to break out if Putin can't undermine the viability of NATO. Exactly. We yeah. just need to stop his foreign policy, which is incredibly dangerous to the, not just the United States, but the world order. Right. Okay. And so, even China yeah. has to appreciate this because China wants strong economic it's China wants economic growth, yeah. and this whole business with this Russian, you know, aggression no, is that, ruining that game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right, so how does this end? 
Well, I think it has to end with us providing robust military assistance to Ukraine so that they can retake their territory. And they are on the path to doing this. It's just slower than I would like, frankly speaking. Part of it is because, you look, Peter Baker quotes me, and he has a great art, so I'm self-serving here, but he has a great article in the New York Times laying out the fact that in the U.S. and in Europe, there's been fear of quote-unquote escalation, you know, what will Putin do if he starts to really lose, and that's held us back. But we should not be afraid of Putin losing. We need him to lose, and as fast as possible. And, and let's just add a curiosity, because occasionally, so my, my son is 13, <laughs> and like a 13-year-old, he says, why don't we just assassinate Putin, right? Which So when he first said that, or I think he first said it around Trump, and I was explaining, no, here are all the reasons why you can't do it, bad, <laughs> bad, bad. Let's say that, that Lyle is, is right, and the U.S., and I assume we know roughly where he is. If we were willing to incur tremendous amounts of collateral damage of, of innocent people, you, you could kill him, right? You could drop a bomb on wherever he is, drone, whatever it's. Let's say that did happen. What's the reaction? Do the Russians then, like, rise up to even make it even worse because they're so angry, or are they like, thank God you got rid of this guy? Well, I think assassinating any head of state, you know, in this context, even the Ukrainians, I mean, the international order essentially, it, it creates these, these guardrails. And one of the guardrails is you don't assassinate heads of state. Right. Now, we know that our allies, the Israelis, do targeted assassinations of, of Iranian uh, you know, nuclear scientists and the like. Um, and we don't like it and we don't condone it. Um, or even if we like it, we don't condone it. <laughs> um, and because it's just not... Um, Appropriate, and I think it, it keeps it keeps things under control. If you don't, you know, it, 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 it it's part of the international order. It keeps things it keeps things under control if you don't condone assassin, assassination, because otherwise it's dog eat dog, and it, it can become really dangerous really fast. The better thing to do is to try to appeal to the Russian people, try to demonstrate through our actions that they would be better off in a system like the Ukrainian system, try to support those Russian dissidents who are either in Russia or outside of Russia. What, what we don't get a lot of um, kind of reporting on in our media is, is actually how much resistance there is in Russia. Right. Uh, you know, the Dagestani women blocking the road, that, came, that got out eventually. But some of the Russian dissidents that I know who are here in the, in the U.S., you know, they said, this has been going on for a while. They've been also sabotaging trains. You know, the, the Russian people are not all gung-ho about Vladimir Putin. Well, you know, the hundreds of thousands fleeing <laughs> right. probably evidence of that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my fervent hope is that the Russian people get a better leader eventually, one that they deserve. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned Iran. They're going through a pretty, what seems, well, is this momentous or is it just us excited because we hate them and so bad things that happen to them make us happy? I think it's momentous because these are women who, who started this demonstration in Iran mm -hmm. over the death, basically the killing of this young woman for a crime, you know, which is, you know, a religious crime of not wearing the hijab, the, the head yeah. covering. And, you know, the women went to the streets, but then the men joined them. And it's been going, it's been in multiple cities, ongoing now, I don't even know for how many days. The government has been unable to, you know, tamp it down. So in that respect, it seems to be more durable, you know, more enduring, and so potentially a greater threat to the regime. I'm not an expert on the dynamics internally inside of Iran, but it certainly looks to me like something very different from what we've seen before. So what does it take to go from, you know, 
people being totally oppressed to people starting to kind of express their dissatisfaction to actually people saying, all right, we're just not going to stand for this. We're going to overthrow a government. Um, it, what historically, do you need the whole country to buy into that? Is it like a 5% in that you're pretty much there? Like, how, how do you sort of predict what, based on where we are today in Iran, it, it, can that grow to a place where you actually do see regime change? I think it can grow to a place where you do see regime change. What, you know, it, it remains to be seen, but it could be like the Tunisian fruit vendor who lit himself on fire and essentially started the Arab Spring. Now, the Tunisian, you know, democracy is still uh, a work in progress, but he, his one act, that act that he took, he was so fed up and he expressed the frustration of so many other Tunisians who were just trying to make a living and living in this corrupt system with this very wealthy you know, government that was basically autocratic. They had been in power forever, fleecing the people. And he, and he expressed his frustration by lighting himself on fire. And every, you know, the Tunisians came out you know, kind of sharing his outrage and overthrew the government. So I don't, but people, so people say there's usually someone, you know, someone triggers this. Maybe right. it was the death of this young yeah, woman. Yeah, and and you, have that. you yeah. can't predict it though. In the Russian case, I think for the Russian people to really go to the streets and demand a change, it is more likely that it's something economic. You know, when, when I saw truck drivers demonstrating several years ago about taxes, they were putting out down pole, like um, tolls, new tolls yeah. on the roads. And this was like oligarchs trying to make money off the truck drivers. You know, it was pretty crappy. And so they went to the streets. When the pensions were raised by Putin at one point, or sorry, lowered, yeah. the pension age was uh, was raised rather the people demonstrated. But then he quickly took it back, you know? So he sort of knew how to respond. So if a government knows how to respond, if they don't dig in their heels, then they can they can sort of swing it around. I mean, Belarus, they had what we thought was a moment where they were going to get rid of their longtime ruler, Lukashenko, because they had an election that, it appears, went to um, uh, Tikhonov, uh, Ms. Tikhonovskaya, and who ultimately had to flee the country. Um, but the people went to the streets before that happened, and it looked like it was awfully close, but Putin came in and helped with some special forces, and the, the leader of Belarus is still in power today, thanks to Vladimir Putin. So China, Taiwan, both China in terms of any conflict with the U.S. economically or militarily, and then is the Ukraine a harbinger for Taiwan in one direction or the other? Well, I think, uh, so President Xi came to power in 2012. And this is the really interesting thing about China, because China, of course, had ambitions to be a great power and to, and to rival us in, in Asia Pacific at a minimum, if not yeah. globally. But with Xi, he, he kind of like took the gloves off. He became much more confrontational and obvious about it. And at the same time, what we're now beginning to understand is certainly with the on with the onset of covid and the response by Xi's government to covid he's also clamped down and the communist party now is taking on a bigger role in business and across society and so Xi in terms of his foreign policy is looking at Taiwan as part of his legacy as a as a ruler he wants to reunite Taiwan with China that's part of his platform he's also very much 
however, aware of what's happening in Ukraine with right. Russia. And so I think to the another reason why we need to let Ukraine win or help Ukraine win as fast as possible is also to dissuade Xi from deciding that it's a good idea to try to you know invade your neighbor and take it over. There's a contrast, and maybe you're about to ask me this, <laughs> because we've had a military relationship with Taiwan way longer than we've had one with Ukraine. Right. And Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, is way more united behind protecting Taiwan and its, and its you know, whether you call it sovereignty or its rights, um, than we ever were with regard to Ukraine. So the Chinese government has to be watching this, but watching it, you know, hopefully understanding that there's a big warning sign up. And so my hope is, again, that we prevail in Ukraine right. so for that, that reason. So the one thing we haven't done in Ukraine so far is obviously sent American troops into the war itself, nor has anyone else. Um, so do you think if China invaded Taiwan, we would actually respond with our own armed forces? I think that we would do everything we could not to respond with our own armed forces. There's a lot we can do without our own armed forces or without actually getting directly involved. Even even in the case of Russia, Ukraine, there's more we could do that we're not doing. We are, however, providing actionable intelligence, advising. You know, I think we're very much involved in that war from a distance. In the case of Taiwan, we could do the same thing. And we could also, you know, you have a force that's closer to the region, you know, on the water, in international waters. But I think, again, it's not in our interest to go to war with China. And this is why it's really important for us to defeat Vladimir Putin's, you know, very aggressive foreign policy, defend the international order, and then we turn to China and we try to manage this relationship. China is trying to rewrite the rules of the international order, and they are also violating human rights inside of China, you know, with the Uyghur, yeah, the camps sure. for the ethnic Uyghurs. These yes. are Muslim, um, Muslims living in, in China. And this is something that we do need to stand up. We do need to stand up and say is unacceptable. And you can't rewrite the rules of the international order to say that you can abuse your citizens. You know, the, the UN Charter says you can't. And so you cannot rewrite that. So we have to stand up to the Chinese. They've been taking leadership positions in the UN system over the last decade plus, and we haven't really countered them effectively. We are now doing that. And I believe we can manage the relationship. It doesn't have to lead to war. It doesn't have to lead to them invading Taiwan if we deter them. So I do think, yes, the Department of Defense, they have to build the strongest deterrent so that China doesn't challenge you know, the, the international order, doesn't challenge us, doesn't invade Taiwan. But at the same time, we need to continue normal trade in non-critical military you know, technologies. So I need to be able to buy a shirt from China and you know, all that, because it helps consumers. And the global trade is actually a good kind of um, cooling mechanism, if you will, that we don't have with Russia, for example. I don't think it's a bad thing. Global trade is good for everyone. And so um, we need to kind of make sure we don't go overboard with our protectionism and our anti-China rhetoric. So usually if I were spinning around the world, I wouldn't turn to Europe next, but <laughs> the combination of the rise of extremism across the continent, or at least the western part of the continent, northern, plus just the mess that has, the UK has become, yeah. what's your take on all that? Um, 
again, this is partly the effect of Russia and China, these autocratic governments with their and social media and using their they're getting their messages across, making us fight with one another, populism, also stoking populism. And the opportunity was there because of change, technological change, economic disparity increasing in different parts of Europe and certainly in the US and in the Western Hemisphere. And so I, unfortunately, we're seeing this struggle, which is probably a perennial struggle. I mean, we've seen populism, we've seen neo-fascism or actual fascism in the past in Europe. And unfortunately, as you said, people's memories are short and we need to refresh those memories and we need to fight. Democracy is not something you can take for granted. I do feel a little bit encouraged by the fact that youth around the world are much more engaged and concerned. So now they have to do something about it. Right. Yeah, that's right. They have both the kind of organizing issue around, which is beyond the sort of normal political instability that the world always has, is, is climate, right? I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I, I see that. They, yeah. I remember in COVID saying to my kids, okay, so what's worse, COVID or climate? I figured, like, you know, they've been quarantined for yeah. six months. They're like, climate. Yeah. And it, they were, they were yeah. surprised I was even asking the question. And they have the mechanism that sort of enabled the, the Arab Spring, which is the internet, right? So arguably, you know, there is that kind of the hope that you have, there is some real potential around it. Um, let's come back to the U.S. So you ran for, for Congress. Um, you are obviously, you worked in Congress, you understand politics really well. I understand that everyone's prediction is fairly worthless, uh, yes. including mine. <laughs> With that said, because we're like less than two weeks out from the primary, I mean, from the, uh, from the midterms, what do you think will happen? Well, again, uh, I don't know. And as you said, it's very subjective. People's predictions, even if they're data-driven, they are also influenced by what they want. Yeah, it's a lot I, of I think I think that, you know, and the polls are showing everything so close. So my prediction remains that the Democrats keep the Senate mm -hmm. uh, because despite some of the candidates' problems more recently, the Democratic candidates, I, I think that they will eke it out. And part of this is because I'm not sure I trust the polls, you know, these recent polls. And so I'm kind of just going back to my understanding and my feel for the states that are in the in the toss up, yeah. you know, so Pennsylvania, um, uh, Arizona, right. Georgia. so uh, Georgia. So my I, I think that we will. So I, I think that we will see a Senate that remains Democratic, but close, obviously. Right. Um, and then on the House side, I guess everyone thinks that the Republicans are going to take it, and I, I hate to admit that that it, that may happen. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I had the same reaction to the polls to you, but in the opposite way, which is I don't know. Six weeks ago, there was a sort of notion of like, oh, maybe the Democrats won't lose the House. Maybe they'll pick up seats. Yeah. And same thing, but my thought was like, okay, there's data which may or may not has its flaws of collection of methodology and everything else. But there's also common sense, right? So, like to me, it's like midterms are always bad, right? So it's not like this is some sort of unprecedented thing, and it may or may not happen. It happens every, yeah. you know, every, every four years. And then number two, I just think gas prices is like you know we've been debating this podcast for a long time. What's a bigger motivator, Dobbs or gas prices? And I think when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, it really tends to be economic and pocketbook and and just, you know, inflation is incredibly high right now. So 
Did the GDP numbers came out today? Were they? Did anyone know what they were? Were they good? I think the economy is, is back, uh, is growing again. Yeah. But 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 I'm not an economist, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> but I think that's the headline I saw coming out in the New York Times this afternoon. But the one thing I will also say, and I'm not it's the only one 2. saying 6, it. Two point six. It grew two point six percent, which is in line with um, with the forecasts. Yeah. So then the question is, but how does that affect the bread and butter and the and the Correct. price of gas? I will say though, um, and this is you know everybody who gets asked this question probably has to do a reminder. You know how many days do we have left? October yeah. surprises. Apparently, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. It was a midterm election, okay. and Kennedy, of course, prevailed and looked strong. And so I guess the Democrats did well. So maybe we win in Ukraine in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> and Biden will look like a hero. And then yeah. uh, you know, then the Democrats will hold. Uh, yeah, and that if if winning a war that's been going on for the whole year against someone <laughs> like Vladimir Putin is with what the Democrats need to hold the House or the Senate, that's that's. Uh, or pretty risky to begin with. Yeah, but, I think, um, all right, I so think last so. question. You speak like, I don't know, 43 languages or something? How many languages do you speak? Well, fluently, Hungarian, English, German, and then I've studied like French, Spanish, Russian, Hindi, and then I lived in Bosnia, so I'm a little Serbo-Croatian. Well, everyone knows a little Serbo-Croatian. Um, so then, <laughs> Maybe in New York City. Yeah, so, so, so given that, so that's, that's all, I lost count, but it's a lot. Um, Let's say someone, you've got to have something of a natural talent for languages, I imagine, because it seems like you just wouldn't put in that much effort, have that much interest if you didn't. Someone listens to podcast was like, look, I may not have a ton of talent for language, but I'd really like to be able to do some version of what Evelyn's done. What's the best advice for them? Go overseas, live somewhere where you have to speak the language. Because a Hungarian, that was my first language, so that's yeah. cheating. And English, well, when I was four years old, I had to go to school and I had to yeah. converse with the teachers and the other people around me, and I live in America. Um, but the, um, the German, I don't think I would have learned had I not spent a summer when I was in high school, between junior and senior year, in Austria with family friends, actually having to speak to other teenagers and speak in German. I couldn't speak in English or Hungarian, except the host family, they spoke um, Hungarian also. But, you know, if you are immersed, if you're immersed, yeah, so go overseas, even if it's, if you're young, even if it's three weeks, that's enough, you know, as as, so long as you're being, you know, kind of semi-immersed. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how do you not, so like, when I was in college, I spent a semester in Madrid, and look, they don't really speak that much English in Spain, especially not Mm. in 1994, and so I did learn Spanish uh, for all the reasons you said, and then it's just sort of dissipated over the years because I live in New York and I speak English and everyone else speaks English. I mean, I use Spanish here a little bit, but it's more like kind of halting, like, hey, yeah. I'll get the door for you, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so... Uh, Bradley, could I hear, yeah. hey, could I get the door for you in Spanish, yeah, please? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's usually more like a spero momento, like just wait, 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 yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, figure yeah. it out. Um, so... Any advice on sort of what do you do when you come back from your three weeks in Austria? How do you maintain it? Yeah, find ways to interact with people who speak the language. So go to cultural things around town. Um, I mean, you're, you're in, we're in New York City now. There's a million ways to do that. Um, I, I find with the German every year, I try every year to read a book in German. Um, so my German's at that level. Yeah. So you have to be at that level. But right. if you're at the reading comprehension level, then try to read a book. Or, or, or when I was really busy with work, I would read a newspaper. So yeah. Is the book like and speak to, speak to people who... Like sorry? Is the book like some sort of historical German, like no, Thomas Mann? No, because then I won't do it. So yeah. I, I tried to find like, you know, like a, 
you know, uh, some kind of more, I don't know, not chick lit, but, you know, something more entertaining. Right. Evelyn, are there any great uh, <laughs> German podcasts that you know of? Oh, my gosh. There must be. Oh, I'm sure there, there are. There probably yeah. are, but that's actually a good, you know, that's yeah, a good a tip. Great, I'm, gonna, a good I'm a runner, idea, so I do listen, and I should find one. Right, and generally speaking, if you had your three weeks and you want to immerse yourself, you can clearly, you know, download podcasts in any language imaginable and so, yeah, that's actually, you just discovered a good way. How amazing would it be if people overseas um, learned English by listening to this podcast? Well, but you know what's funny? So there is now. We're just gonna, <laughs> I love but, that. But the, I, I signed up for some sort of service. I didn't get the premium one, so I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of data I'm really getting. But it shows us where we rank um, in different countries uh-huh. in terms of like in the news category or whatever we're in. And people in weird places like... Sweden and Israel and India. And I'm Indonesia. responsible for all the Swedish. I figured that must have been you. But it's funny that like I don't think it's a lot of people, but like we do seem to have people that listen to this around the world. So all of our listeners all over the world, with all nine of you, um, thank you for listening. Well, the McCain Institute is global, so you never know what you're going to get next time you check your stats. Right. So then, how do people learn more about the McCain Institute? How do they follow the work that you're doing? Yeah. So please go to McCainInstitute.org. We are also on Twitter. Um, I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I, you can also follow me, Evelyn N. Farkas, and mm-hmm. then through me, get to the McCain Institute. And um, we are on Instagram as well. As I said, these moments in Senator McCain's history, you know, that remind us of why we're Americans and what it means to be an American. Um, we put those on there as well, like I said, on October 28th, which might be today, um, the shoot down date. There we go. Cool. Evelyn Farkas, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cool.